0: If you have your Bibles or your Scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you over with me to Luke and chapter 11, the Gospel of Luke and chapter 11. We'll be in verses 14 through 23 in our time together this morning as we continue our journey through this incredible Gospel. Luke 11, 14 through 23, if you got it, say, I got it. It'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there. Luke 11, let's read this together. Let's start at verse 14. The Holy Spirit says, Now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from heaven a sign. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Amen, it's God's word. May God write eternal truce on all of our hearts. A few months ago, Ligonair ministry released a State of Theology report in partnership with Lifeway Christian Resources, uh, something they do every two years. So they released one 2020, and they released one this year, and let's just say the results are somehow both unsurprising and shocking. The survey reports the theology of Americans, and it's broken down in two segments, evangelicals and simply U.S. adults, Okay. Uh, among the depressing results is that more than half of evangelicals believe that God accepts the worship of all religions. More than half believe everyone sins a little, but people are generally good. And about 30% agree with this statement, God learns and adapts to different circumstances. All of those are alarming misunderstandings of basics of biblical theology, but surely evangelicals would get right Jesus' identity, right? Surely professing Christians would know the basics about who Jesus is. Not so fast. Nearly 75% of evangelicals believe that Jesus was created by God and not eternally God himself. 75%. A simple understanding of the Nicene Creed would correct that misunderstanding. A whole ecumenical council was convened in 325 to answer that heresy. One in which even St. Nicholas did you know, was in attendance for. So Santa himself would be disappointed with the theology of 75% of people. But there's more. 43% of evangelicals agree with the following statement. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 43%. This particular statement jumped 13% since 2020, meaning that in just two years, evangelical theology has somehow gotten worse. This statement, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God, is one that many people believe, whether Christian or not. Non-Christians are known to think this about Jesus. This is because they try to toss him, Jesus, into the heap of all the other religions, believing he was just a great founder of religion, uh, a religion like the, all the other founders of religion. They see no difference between Jesus and Buddha or Muhammad or Joseph Smith. So they say Jesus had good things to say, like be nice to each other and be accepting of each other, but he was nothing more than a good teacher, just like all the others. You know, During World War II, our friend, and I quote him so much, he might be the pastor emeritus here, C.S. Lewis would frequently visit airmen in the Royal Air Force, And sometimes he would lecture at various installations and teach chaplain classes. Uh, And he found that the belief Jesus was a great teacher, but not God, was one many believed among those military members then as now. So in his radio lectures, which later became the book Mere Christianity, he addressed this argument. And this is what he famously said. You might recognize this quote. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You could shut him up for a fool. You could spit, him, spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you could fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But he says, let us not come with any of this patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Lewis was saying there that Jesus cannot be a mere good teacher. His claims and his teachings were such that no sane moral teacher, no sane merely human moral teacher could make those claims and still be considered to be in his right mind. Either he wasn't his God in the flesh, or he was a lunatic akin to a man who thinks he's a poached egg. You can't merely admire him as having said some nice things. Either you think he was wrong and an imposter, or you must bow down and worship him. Lewis is getting at something that our text is getting at as well. When it comes to Jesus, you must make a choice. Follow him or don't. Worship him or don't. Be made whole or stay empty. Be in the kingdom of Christ or stay in the self-propelled misery of the kingdom of darkness. So if we were to synthesize, the main point of this text in one sentence, it would be this. When it comes to Jesus, one cannot be neutral. A choice must be made. That's what this text is getting at. When it comes to Jesus, one cannot be neutral. A choice must be made. So Luke takes us from Jesus' teaching on prayer that we saw last week, to a scene in which he casts out a mute demon. Uh, A man was possessed by a demon, and the demon made the man mute. Matthew uh, adds that the man was also blind. Matthew says, after the healing, he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And we have seen Jesus do many such things. We've seen him both heal people with physical afflictions, even raising someone from the dead, as well as casting out many demons. Now, something else we have seen in a lot of places in Luke and in this scene is people marvel. Do you see that? They marvel. They're amazed at Jesus' work. And then they speculate as to who he is, as we have here again. But look at their speculation. Some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking a sign from heaven. They marvel. They were amazed. They're impressed. And they speculate. Here's something we need to pause and consider. Simply marveling at Jesus' work and person will not do. It's not enough. Being impressed by Jesus, being appreciative of his teachings, as we saw in the beginning, being an admirer of his, it won't do the trick. Jesus isn't looking for people to simply like what he did or appreciate his person and words. Jesus is after followers not fans. See, Jesus knows full well the fickle nature of people who marvel at his words and deeds. Do you remember in chapter 9, it wasn't that long ago, when the crowds were marveling at him, casting out a demon, and healing the boy with epilepsy? And Luke tells us that as the crowds were marveling, Jesus turned to his disciples and said, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. That's how he... Responded to the crowds marveling. Jesus knew that astonishment from people did nothing. He knew that the crowds would go from fans to enemies in a moment's notice because they aren't looking to be changed, you understand. They aren't looking to pick up a cross and follow. They're just looking for someone who could benefit them in the moment. They want someone who can heal them of physical infirmity, post-haste someone they could receive an immediate physical benefit from. But once Jesus turns out to not at all be what they were expecting, they turn from shouting, Hosanna in the highest, to crucify him. Jesus is not some stage magician who simply wants to bask in the glow of the oohs and ahs of the crowds with his parlor tricks. That's not why he came. He, he didn't come so that people would think he was a pretty neat guy. He didn't come so that people would appreciate the cool things he did and said. He didn't come so that people would like him and be impressed by his miracles. He came to completely renovate the world and to completely renovate people who died a self so that they may truly live and turn and follow him. He came to make all things new. See, admiring Jesus does nothing. And see, this is a problem today as it was 2,000 years ago when this scene took place. Today, people claim to be Christians, but do not actually follow Jesus. They like him. They admire him. They think it would be great if he could save them from hell when they die. They vaguely worship him as the God of their national or family heritage. But follow him? Die to self? Submit to his lordship in their life? No thank you. Give me heaven, but please don't interfere with my life. They may not say that with their mouths, but they say it with their hearts and their lives. Think of sports fandom. Thousands of thousands of people went to sports ball games yesterday to cheer teenagers, toss an egg-shaped ball to and fro throughout a grass surface. Yes? And I'm talking about football, if you didn't get that reference, okay? College football in particular. And they could go and they could wear a jersey or a shirt or a hat of their team and they could cheer and be disappointed. They could sing and they could shout. They could refer to what their team does to the first person plural of we, but they didn't play. It didn't actually cost them anything personally to win the game. They didn't train. They didn't prepare all week. They didn't put pads on. They didn't sweat or get bloodied up. They sat in the stands or in front of large TVs. They admired their team from afar, but they didn't invest in a costly way to the victory. And you know something else? If the team starts to lose and lose and lose and lose and lose and lose and and season after season ends in disappointment, the enthusiastic fandom will become less less and less enthusiastic. There are many people especially in the American South, who say they know Jesus, who say they worship Jesus, who say they admire Jesus, say they even love Jesus, but their attachment to him is as strong as a fan of a sports team. They love him, especially when life is going well, but not so much when things get hard. They love him when they think all he wants to do is get them out of hell, but not to remake their lives. They love the safety of cultural Christianity, but not the costly followership that Jesus actually calls for. 19th century Danish theologian Søren Kierkegaard said this about admirers of Jesus The admirer never makes any true sacrifices, he always plays it safe. Though in word he is inexhaustible about how highly he prizes Christ, he renounces nothing, will not reconstruct his life, and will not let his life express what it is it is he is supposedly admires. Not so for the follower, no, no. The follower aspires with all his strength to be what he admires. And then remarkably enough, even though he is living amongst a Christian people, he incurs the same peril as he did when it was dangerous to openly confess Christ. And because of the follower's life, it will become evident who the admirers are, for the admirers will become agitated with him. Even these words will disturb many, but then they might likewise belong to the admirers. See, in our pluralistic anything-goes society where we have decided that there is no objective truth in our acceptance of marginal Christianity as a valid form of discipleship, hearing something like you can't merely admire Jesus sounds so narrow, doesn't it? That sounds so narrow. How dare you say that I can't have a vague attachment to Jesus and be a Christian? Shouldn't I be able to follow Jesus however I want? But see, when you consider who Jesus is, And what he has come to do, being an admirer from afar, makes no sense whatsoever. Having a -a build-a-bear Christianity will look less and less like a valid option in light of who Jesus says he is. Look what Jesus says when the people speculate about how he heals and casts out demons in verse 17 through 20. Let's read it again. Verse 17, but he knowing their thoughts said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste. And a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Can we first note the absolute irony? And the people speculate about Jesus' identity while he literally reads their thoughts. Do you see that at the beginning of verse 17? The crowd wants a sign. And while they're demanding a sign, Jesus is reading their minds. The other irony is that they want a sign when Jesus literally cast out a demon from a man they knew was viewed because of it. And now they see the man walking around talking. They wonder, maybe this Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul. Beelzebul is just another way of saying Satan. The origin of the name uh, are disputed, but the name means something like Lord of the Flies or Lord of the Dung Heap. And he has some attachment to false gods we see the Old Testament like Baal. Jesus here associates Beelzebub with Satan, the prince or ruler of demons. To those who think Jesus' power to cast out demons might be coming from Beelzebul, Jesus shows why this logic is flawed. If Jesus casts out demons, how can he be doing it by the power of Satan? Why would Satan want to cast demons out of people? Doesn't it hurt Satan's purposes of harming and enslaving humanity to cast out his own flunkies? Didn't he send the demons in the first place? Casting them out would be, says Jesus, akin to a civil war. How helpful is a civil war in an effort towards victory? Instead of fighting against an outside enemy, you spend your time fighting one another. What's that do? So either Satan is a dummy who purposefully frustrates his own plans, or Jesus is coming in the power of God in order to dismantle Satan's kingdom. Which is it? That's what Jesus is saying. Which is it? It must be one or the other. See, though Satan's doom is sure, and though he is no match for Christ, as we will see in a moment, he isn't so foolish that he would attack his own kingdom. Satan knows that no kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. He knows that casting out his own demons would be the height of madness. He doesn't work to demolish his own kingdom. He works to attack Christ. And since Satan knows that houses divided against themselves cannot stand, did you know this? One of his chief weapons against the church is division. Satan knows that churches will push back no darkness. Kill no sin. Be no light to the community when they're busy fighting amongst themselves. When churches are turned in on themselves and bickering over silly and petty preferences, when they are divided into subgroups and cliques, they will be too busy trying to defeat one another to do any damage to the kingdom of darkness. Satan loves that inward Christian versus Christian posture. It's doing his work for him. Some might think division in church is just a fact of life, just normal, just part and parcel for sinners gathering together in any capacity. Satan likes those kind of thoughts too. He wants Christians to think it's normal. And you know what? It is normal, but in unhealthy churches. That's where it's normal, unhealthy churches. That's why they stay unhealthy and stay ineffective for the kingdom. Healthy churches don't spend their time fighting because they have far more important things to do, like unite on Christ and fight their true enemy, Satan and sin. Healthy churches know there's an actual war going on and that the enemy never was and never will be people. Charles Spurgeon said it well. He said, besides, Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It's his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. He attaches far more importance to godly intercourse than we do. Since union is strength, he does his best to promote separation. He would hinder their fraternal intercourse that they might miss the strength which always flows from Christian communion and Christian sympathy. Since division is a satanic tactic to try to do damage to the kingdom of Christ, it is thus not a tactic he uses in his own kingdom, says Jesus. Divided houses don't stand for long. They will fall eventually. The implication of Jesus' statement is not only that he is opposed to Satan, but that Satan is out to destroy humankind. Satan's influence is seen in disease and death. And so when disease and death are reversed, this cannot be the work of Satan because then he would be working against himself. And so we see here, Jesus tell us why he came, don't we? We said before throughout our time in Luke that miracles from Jesus are more than just Jesus showing his power and authority over things. Whether it be over the wind and sea or disease and the demonic, the miracles of Jesus show us that Jesus has come to re- reverse the effects of sin and dismantle Satan's kingdom. You see what Jesus says in verse 20? He has established how nonsensical it would be for him to be casting out demons by the power of the devil, so his power must be coming from somewhere else, and there's only one choice, from the finger of God. Now this phrase, finger of God, is significant because Jesus is pointing us back to Exodus. When God rescued the people out of Egypt. Do you guys remember when we were going through Exodus when God was sending the plagues and the first few plagues Pharaoh's magicians were able to replicate them? Do you remember that? But then they got to the plague of the nets and Pharaoh's magicians couldn't do it at all. Then the magicians after they tried and failed they turned to Pharaoh and they said this is the figure of God. In other words only God could do this. That's the conclusion the people are supposed to reach when they see Jesus doing works like casting out demons with a word. On this connection, Craig Evans says this very helpful word. He says, this comparison may have typological meaning implying that the power of God at work in Jesus' ministry is commensurate to the power of God at work in the great deliverance from Egypt long ago. Just as God dismantled the kingly authority of Pharaoh and his gods or demons and transferred his people under his own authority, so now in Jesus' ministry... Satan's kingdom is being dismantled and Israel is being invited to embrace divine rule. So the only conclusion that one can rightfully be made is that the kingdom of God has shown up. That's what Jesus says. The kingdom of God has come in a person and his goal is to frustrate the plans of the devil, to oppose him at every turn, to remake the world, to bring wholeness to the broken, to cause the darkness to flee. Jesus is the rightful king who has come to take what's rightfully his, which is to say everything. It's why Lewis said the world is enemy-occupied territory and that Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed and is calling all of us to take part in the great campaign of sabotage. It's why he portrayed Aslan as the rightful king who would come to chase off the white witch and why when people heard the name of Aslan, they would either have a mysterious, horrible feeling or a mysterious, lovely feeling. It's why Mr. Beaver saying, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrow will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we'll have spring again. It's why Lucy asked if Aslan was safe. And Mr. Beaver, do you remember what he said? He laughed and he said, he isn't safe, but he's good. Lewis was trying to show in vivid picture that this scene in Luke is trying to tell us. Jesus' work of casting out demons and healing the afflicted is to show that the kingdom of God is here. That the rifle king has landed. That he has invaded enemy territory. That when he bears his teeth, as it were, evil flees. That to some his voice is lovely, but to others it's horrible. And that he brings spring again in a world where it's always winter, but never Christmas. Do you see why Jesus' coming demands a response that's deeper than mere admiration of his deeds? If he casts out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come. Isn't that what he says? And if the kingdom of God has come, then we're being confronted with the most important truth of all, the most important decision of all. Is Jesus God's king or isn't he? If he's not, then he's a liar or a lunatic and you go about your business, eat and drink for tomorrow, you'll die. But if he is who he says he is, then you must bow down to him as the rightful king. Jesus is telling us precisely why he came. He came to overthrow Satan, to kill sin and death, to make all things new, to win people to the gospel, to transfer people from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God, and to cause those people who submit to the rightful king to live for their created purpose. Do you see the connection here? You remember the context. Jesus healed a man who was mute because of demonic possession. How did he do it? By the finger of God which is a sign that the kingdom has come. come. So he transformed people are evidence that God's Messiah has come. P- transformed people are evidence that God's Messiah has come and he brought the kingdom with him. Don't you see? Those who encounter Jesus become a different kind of people. Do you, do you agree with that? This doesn't mean it happens overnight. It doesn't mean it's automatic. It means that once you encounter Jesus, If you see him for who he truly is and you respond to him by giving him your allegiance, you will act more and more like a citizen of a different kingdom. You will act different because you are different. Jesus means to change us from the inside out. And there should thus be a noticeable difference in how we live and what we prioritize and how we see the world and how we treat people. And this difference is meant, don't you understand, to testify that the kingdom really has come. Like a previously mute man is evidence in the way he now talks that the kingdom has now come. Because see, everyone is part of the kingdom of darkness by default of our sin nature that we've inherited from Adam. Do you realize that? By nature, we are in the kingdom of darkness. Unless some move is made from outside of ourselves to transfer us out of the kingdom of Satan and into the kingdom of Christ, we remain lost. And the, pe- the reason people will be able to tell if we are in the kingdom of Christ is because we act in a way that only an otherworldly encounter can bring about. And because they're used to seeing the way people act in the kingdom of darkness, which is to say they act like everyone else. See, I don't know if you realize this, there's a great lie out there that says Christians aren't called to really be that different than anybody else. So the logic goes, because we're all sinners... We'll mess up and make mistakes, just like everyone else. And that part is true, isn't it? Isn't that true? Of course, we'll never be perfect. Of course, we'll stumble and fall. Of course, we need new morning mercies every day from God in Christ. And of course, we need to be understanding and patient with one another, not expecting perfection or any such thing. But what has happened is we've turned the grace of God into license. We've taken grace and we made it an excuse to stay the same. We've taken sin and we made it acceptable to where there need not be any struggle against it whatsoever. No sin killing, no ongoing repentance, no striving to be like Christ. It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. He said cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. He said alternatively, Costly grace is the way of Christ and it is costly because it calls us to follow and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. It is costly because it costs the man his life and it is grace because it gives the man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Real grace changes someone as radically as a mute man who can now speak. Like a blind man who can now see like a lame man who can now walk, like a dead man who now lives. Now, don't hear me say that we need works to justify ourselves or that there is some kind of bar of morality we must all meet in order to be accepted. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that Jesus says, what Jesus says, which is that those who meet him become altogether different people over time. And they look at Christ and they look at Christ and they look at Christ as true treasure and true prize and true motive to live as they were created because that's exactly why he came, to remake us. Not to simply save us from hell, but to remake us on earth to live for a better country. How is it then that some can claim Christ but imagine they can live how they want with no submission to Christ and no striving to obey him or image him? How is that? How can we say we know and love him, yet have nothing to do with him? You see what we've done? How can we say he is our king when we look at his commands and stare at him in the face and say, no. How can we say we've encountered him and internalized who he really is, that we look just like people who don't know him at all and still belong to the kingdom of darkness? How could that be? David Platt illustrates like this. He says, imagine you and I set up a meeting for lunch at a restaurant and you arrive before I do. You wait and wait and wait, but 30 minutes later, I still haven't arrived. When I finally show up completely out of breath, I say to you, I'm sorry I'm late. When I was driving over here, my car had a flat tire and I pulled over the side on the interstate to fix it. While I was fixing it, I accidentally stepped into the road and a Mack truck going about 70 miles an hour, suddenly hit me head on. It hurt, but I picked myself up, finishing putting the spare tire on the car, and I drove over here. He says, if this were the story I shared, you would know I was either deliberately lying or completely deceived. Why? Because if someone gets hit by a Mack truck going 70 miles per hour, that person is going to look very different than he did before. In light of this, he says, I feel like I'm on pretty safe ground in assuming that once people truly come face to face with Jesus, the God of the universe in the flesh, and Jesus reaches down into the depths of their hearts, saves their souls from the clutches of sin, and transforms their lives to follow him, they're going to look different. Very different. People who claim to be Christians while their lives look no different from the rest of the world are clearly not Christians. Now, I know we hear that and think, come on. Seems unduly harsh. I don't believe that. Right? Who am I to judge anyway? But, I mean, you've got to truly think about it. Just as illogical as it is that Jesus would be on the devil's payroll, and proof of that was that he was casting out demons, it's equally, if not more so, illogical to think one can encounter this Jesus and remain unaffected. Jesus believes that the fact that the kingdom has come, that he has lived the life we failed to live, that he died the death we deserve to die in our place, was raised by the Holy Spirit, effectively paying our debt and defeating sin and death, that we will be transformed people. And this will be further evidence to a world in darkness that the kingdom really has come. See, if Jesus has shown up to invade enemy territory, if he has come to bring the kingdom into time and space, then that means that there are only two kingdoms and you belong to one or the other. He makes this more clear in this short parable in verses 21 and 22, doesn't he? Says Jesus, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying Satan is the strong man who is guarding his palace and he's armed to the teeth and he feels secure and he feels peaceful. But then a man who's stronger than him shows up and that man is who? It's Jesus. And the stronger man beats up the strong man and he binds him and he takes his plunder. Jesus is the one who enters into Satan's territory. He defeats him with ease. He takes his stuff and he casts him out. That is why he came. See, the Bible does not, as some suppose, depict the battle between Satan and Christ as a sort of dualism of equal and opposite forces battling for the soul of the universe. There is a battle going on. Let's get that straight. But the battle isn't against equal forces, and the struggle is one-sided. Jesus is struggling. Satan may be strong, but Jesus is infinitely stronger. That's what this story is showing us. Satan has armor, but Jesus dispatches it quite easily. See, we're so used to watching movies and TVs where there are two forces, yes, of equal strength, battling it out until the protagonist eventually wins through grit and determination, barely gets out, right? Star Wars has the light and the dark side, both able to powerfully use the force. It's, it's an eternal struggle between Jedi and Sith. Lord of the Rings tells of a band of unlikely heroes making their way to Mordor because the already powerful Dark Lord can get the ring and become indestructible. Superheroes. Battle against villains who also have powers and the fight to stop them is an arduous one. Why? Because if the heroes in any medium defeated the villain in the first 10 minutes without breaking a sweat and then the credits rolled, nobody would go to see that. So it's hard for us to conceive of a battle wherein the hero doesn't struggle. But Jesus is the hero who plunders the villain and it's really not a fair fight. He just comes into a dude's house. Isn't that what this is portraying? He comes into a dude's house and he beats him up and he ties him up and he takes his armor and his stuff. I mean, he has the power from the finger of God because, well, he is God. What fight is fair between creator God and creature? Verna uh, Poitras says this. He says, Jesus' victory over Satan underscores the greatness of God's power. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan are not equally matched kingdoms. Satan is not a second God comparable to the true God. Satan is powerful, but he is only a creature. His rebellion against God cannot succeed. The demons are subject to Christ's authority. Satan and his evil agents brought about the crucifixion of Christ, but God's hand directed the entire process, and he brought about salvation through the very events that Satan intended for evil. And What is the plunder that Jesus takes from the strong man? Do you know what it is? It's you. It's people who were previously in the grip of the kingdom of darkness. He releases the captives in a truer, better, and final exodus. And how does he get the plunder? By means of his death, did Jesus win the victory? And as they say to the victor, go the spoils. Jesus is telling us here that Satan is no longer in control. He is active, yes, but he is on a leash, and the other end of it is secure, guess where? In the hands of Christ. He can't win, don't you see? He is, is that not good news? Satan cannot win. See, whatever it is in your life that you feel like you cannot overcome, whatever whatever sin is hounding you and you are so frustrated and angry that you cannot seem to win, whatever thing is making you anxious or afraid, whatever bitterness or unforgiveness, you cannot get past whatever barrier or wall you keep running into and cannot leap over, you must know that God never intended you to overcome on your own might and that the struggle is not helpless. Why? Because Jesus is stronger still. You know, remember what the greatest gift was last week from verse 13? The Holy Spirit. He can help you overcome whatever it is that is keeping you from growth in Christ, not by your own strength, but by His. We fear not the dark, we fear not sin. We fear not even death ultimately because we know Jesus invaded enemy territory and he bound the strong man because he's stronger to still and no onslaught of the devil or evil thing can ultimately win if you are on the side of the strong Christ. Christopher Ash illustrates it like this in the context of Job's struggle. He says, a walker enters a farmyard and is terrified by wild dogs snarling and snapping around his ankle. He's scared. The question he's bound to ask is, are these dogs restrained in any way? Are they on a leash? Is there an owner around who could call them off? He's afraid there exists no sovereign God who has evil on a leash, but there is. Satan is a horrible monster, but he can't go one inch beyond the leash on which the Lord keeps him. Do you see Once you know that Satan, that horrible monster is restrained and you belong to the one who has the leash in his mighty hands, there's nothing to fear. We need not fear the dark if we know the one who repels it. Take heart, friend. If you are on Jesus' side, he is more powerful than anything you will ever face. You need not even fear the old serpent himself because while he is strong, Jesus is the stronger man and he plunders as he pleases. Does that mean things will be easy Of course not. In fact, these will be harder because those who are bound do not struggle. So it's an easy life of indulgence. Only those who have been set free by the ultimate plunder or struggle, but they win because of where their power comes from. But Jesus isn't finished saying hard things, is he? Verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatter. Scatters Now, here's a statement from Jesus that makes our postmodern ears recoil. Did Jesus really mean that? You guys remember back in chapter nine? Remember when when the disciples came up to Jesus and said, Jesus, we saw a fella casting out demons in your name, and since we didn't know him, we told him to stop. Do You remember that? Aren't you proud of us, Jesus? And Jesus said, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you, do you remember? Is for you. Now, that sounds more like it. Whoever is not against us is for us. Now, there's something we could get behind. So why is Jesus here saying something that seems so contradictory? Well, the difference is the question of who the faith centers on. It's not the disciples. They aren't the center of the faith. But Jesus is, and that's where the question is here in chapter 11. You may not agree with all disciples of Jesus. That's fine. There might be people doing things in Jesus' name and they aren't part of your circle. That's fine. People might be indifferent to you. This doesn't condemn them to hell. People might be neutral about you. So be it. What people cannot be neutral on is Jesus. There can be no neutrality with him. One cannot be Sweden in relation to Jesus. One cannot say, as we've been saying, I like Jesus, I admire Jesus, but I'll do it from afar. I don't need to follow him. Some may try to be agnostic toward Jesus. I don't dislike Jesus. I'm indifferent to him. That may seem like a non-choice, but it is a choice. And it's a choice for the kingdom of darkness. As someone once said, we may think we could sit on the fence, but we must realize that Satan owns the fence. Jesus is saying, to not make a choice is to make a choice. If we are, by nature, because of sin in the kingdom of darkness, to not choose is to choose. And it's to make the wrong one. Friend, don't you realize a war is going on? And you must choose a side. But let's not soften the words of our Lord here. There are no conscientious objectors in this battle. Either you are with Christ or you're with the devil. That's what he's saying here. You know, such black and white choices make us uncomfortable in our colorless world full of shades of gray. But Jesus doesn't much care if we don't like that a choice must be made because he cares too much to leave us in the dark. He beckons us to choose the kingdom of God, but he won't force us. He lays the choice bare and we must bow the knee or bow up. What we cannot do is remain indifferent. Either Jesus is a liar, a lunatic, or he really is the eternal God shown up in the flesh, bringing the kingdom with him, making people whole along the way. Everyone will choose, my friend, with Christ or against him. Can I choose a third way? No, you cannot. With Christ or against him? And if you are with Christ, then you are conscribed into the battle to push against the darkness, not only in your own heart, but in the hearts of your fellow believers and in the community and the world. Do you see what he says at the end of verse 23? Whoever does not gather with me scatters. See, there's a picture of the harvest again that Jesus is prone to use. What does this mean? Daryl Bach says, the one who does not gather with Jesus who does not participate in his ministry and mission, ends up being the cause of division. Such a holdout scatters in contrast to joining those who gather. The point of the figure is clear. People either follow Jesus and join with him in bringing others into the kingdom or they stand against him and influence other people not to come. As if we weren't uncomfortable enough already, Jesus says that if we are part of the kingdom of Christ, then he has called us to go and claim more and more territory for his kingdom. If we don't, if we sit in the stands or on the sidelines, decide that the work of reaching people who are presently in the kingdom of darkness is the work of professional ministers or missionaries, then what we're really doing is causing people to stay out of the kingdom of Christ. We're really scattering. To do nothing, says Jesus, is to scatter. That's a hard word, isn't it? It's why I remain unconvinced people can like Jesus' teaching and not follow him. <laughs> who can accept this teaching? Only those who know that Jesus' words, whether we like them or not, are the words of life. If he is God in the flesh, what he, what he is saying, even if it makes a squirm, must be true and life-giving. He isn't saying these things, though, just to make a squirm. He says this because he wants us to know what's at stake here. Do you realize what's at stake here? See, you can leave today and think I'm just a jerk who who preaches hard things, okay? I don't care. That's fine with me. But do not miss the gravity of what Jesus is saying here. What is at stake here? He wants us to know that those in the kingdom of Christ have the honor of doing ministry in a way that affects people's eternity. He wants us to know the mission is too important to sit it out. That whatever we are giving our energy and our efforts to that keeps us from laboring in the harvest is eternally less important. He He wants us to know there's an invisible war going on in your very community. In your very neighborhood. On your very block. In your very house and he wants to use us to gather souls for the kingdom of Christ lest they stay bound in the kingdom of darkness and die that way and there's no greater thing we could give ourselves to than that and so my friend today you you must make a choice don't think you can leave today and make no choice You will make a choice. Not choosing is to choose. As the old Bob Dylan song says, you're going to serve somebody. If you haven't chosen Christ, you'll choose the kingdom of Satan. To do nothing, that's a choice. If you've never given your allegiance to Jesus, my friend, today is the day of salvation. If you have chosen the kingdom of Christ and you have bowed the knee to him, would you renew your covenant with him today by coming to the Lord's table.